you want to talk a little bit so we can get your levels? Which is your favorite child? Yeah, yeah I was just, just going to ask that. that. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Father Mark Oppenheimer. Not the Catholic father, but father of young children. For Father's Day, Mark Oppenheimer. Well, I feel with five kids, we could just call you Father. Father Mark. Father Mark. Joined by co-host Father Leah Leibovitz. Abba Leah Leibovitz. Abba Leah Leibovitz. And um, non-father Stephanie Butnick. I'm fathered. <laughs> you have, you've indeed been fathered. Yep. And you have a father, Howard. And what a Howard, father yeah. is. And I'm what a best gr- dad. He's the dad. I mean, we love our dads. No, he's the best. Well, he's the one we look up to. I think it's safe. He's all of our dads. On this he's, podcast, he's he's the daddy. He's the podcast daddy. He's, when we say, who's your daddy? The answer, when anyone says to any of us, who's your daddy? The answer is Howard. Stephanie feels so comfortable with this conversation, I bet. It's not <laughs> creepy just, at all. No. You don't mind sharing your dad. No, he's he's for everyone. He'll be there for you. For Father's Day, we spoke with Violet Ramis Steele, who is a writer and also is the daughter of comedy legend Harold Ramis of Animal House and Caddyshack, which was on the um, the, the hotel TV at the Memorial Day uh, soccer tournament to which I took Rebecca in Boston. Dad. I, I kicked back in the Hyatt House in Waltham off exit 14, and uh, there was Caddyshack, and I tried to explain to her the greatness of Caddyshack, and it's... It's it's a it can be a tough sell. There, I love. I think it's a brilliant movie, but it's um, it needs a full a full watch. But Violet Ramis Steele is in talking about her dad and talking about parent child relations, and it's it's just such a pleasure. She's the author of of a new book, uh, a memoir of of her father called Ghostbusters Daughter, which you should all read. We also spoke with Matt Schneider, who runs the City Dads Group and also hosts the Modern Dads podcast, and also helped our producer Josh Cross get comfortable with his dadhood when when Josh was a a new father. So we're going to talk to Matt about being a, a Manhattan dad and all of the, the pressures, the rejection by the moms on the playground. It's it's a very, it's 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 uplifting, but also dark. It was a really it's a tough, tough world <laughs> out there. It was a tough world out there for being uh for being a dad. But let's talk Father's Day. Um, Stephanie, what is Father's Day like well, in your house? You know, it's interesting that we are talking to Violet Ramis this week because I was at a very young age subject to all those movies. Like my, my dad, it was very clear early That's on. That's why we love your dad. He was like, okay, I'm going to show you Animal ah. House and you're friend Carly Gould's going to be there and she's going to watch it too and you're probably definitely too young to see this and I feel like he really like educated me in the craft you know those De Palma movies like he really got me into like good movies see this makes me feel better about the fact that over the weekend I took Rebecca to see Booksmart which is what'd she think have you seen it yeah so it's a great movie but the um the very explicit bathroom lesbian scene with digressions into anality was an interesting uh, one to sit through next to your 12-year-old daughter. Like, no one had told me it was going there. But if you took that scene out, I mean, you know do you know what she told me afterwards? I, I turned to her, I said, Rebecca, that was, um, that was quite a movie, wasn't it? She's like, yeah, Dad, it was awesome. And I said, do you think your mother would think so? And she said, Dad, what happens at the Memorial Day soccer tournament stays at the Memorial Day soccer tournament. <laughs> Rebecca Oppenheimer, well-educated child. Never going to vape or play Fortnite. This is why I only show my kids violent movies. Uh, There's no awkward conversations. No awkward conversations violent movies. Do you like the part where John Wick killed 70 guys? Like, yeah, it was great. Leah, what's Father's Day like uh, either in your childhood home or in the current home? So my childhood home uh, in Israel, Father's Day was complicated by two factors. The first is that really (laughs) Israeli holidays are only celebrated 
if they're very hardcore Jewish holidays or if they commemorate the uh, large-scale death and destruction of sufficient numbers of people. So, so there's have, no era of Father's Day. You have Holocaust Day, <laughs> you have Memorial Day, and that's about the only days you <laughs> right, have. No right. one, maybe once in a while. And then mothers. you have like Sunday. And, and then, well, no, because Sunday is a regular day. Right. So, <laughs> I mean, it still Friday. exists. I think they call it um, Shabbat. They have Shabbat. And, and then, you know, uh, Father's Day is complicated if your father is, shall we say, otherwise preoccupied uh, for 20 years. By the bars. federal government, uh, by being in prison. Was he in for 20 years? He was sentenced for 20 years. But he, he got out in like three, right? No, he served 14. Oh, did he? Oh, I That's thought, I, in my mind, quite but a he, bit. he had like weekend leave. So it he was... did have weekend <laughs> leaves. Uh, none of them coincided with Father's, Father's Day. Day. <laughs> it's just very Does Israel not... do Father's Day? Are you aware of Father's Day in Israel? No, nobody does that. No. It, it's literally not a thing at all. So interestingly, growing up um, in, uh, in Eretz, Massachusetts, you know, my parents were not into Mother's Day and Father's Day uh, when I was a kid. I, they, they, they had a sort of like good lefty disdain for the Hallmark Together holidays. with children's literature and home-cooked meals. <laughs> it was things and that just didn't like. Or new furniture. New furniture, new cars. <laughs> uh, there, there was all sorts of things that were disdained as <laughs> as, 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 as bougie and, uh, and untoward. And, um, Your parents were like hardcore kibbutzniks in their in their. Souls. I mean, like they were socialist warriors. They were, you know, with a dash of like Domino's pizza, right? I mean, it's like it's an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting vibe. Like parsing what's okay and what's not is a lifelong process. But Father's Day and Mother's Day didn't really rate. Although now that their kids are all gone, they're more into it. But I, I will say, I was blessed with the idea that these aren't such important days. So if my kids don't make a big deal out of it, like that's okay. There tends to be a wonderfully elaborate breakfast in bed that involves many, many courses. Um, and, and that's nice. And it comes very early in the morning because my kids are up at, you know, 5.30, 6 a.m. So <laughs> like, happy it, Father's it, Day. It does be like 6.40. They awaken me with French toast. <laughs> See, this is a secret. Unlike mothers who I feel like really enjoy just being fed by their children, the best thing you could do for Father's Day is absolutely nothing. The, no. Let us sleep. Let us sleep. Get out of our way. <laughs> do you right. yeah, mothers don't want to sleep on Mother's Day. They no. are definitely not overworked. They want to be taken out for like, Manny Petties. No, and... I think they're like, oh, it's so sweet. And be like, yeah, could you not have waited until 1030? I, I will say that 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 being being attacked by it's seldom seldom do I get all of them at once early in the morning. And there is something very, very sweet about it, no matter how how early it is. So happy Father's Day to all of you and also to the dads who are not fathers. Who, I, feel who like, observe. Yeah. I feel like we've developed a consciousness of people who, you know, there are many life paths and there we have a lot of listeners who are non-dads by choice. And they are uncles or grandfathers or wonderful pet owners. It is interesting because we talked on Mother's Day how fraught it is for people. I mean, particularly also if you've lost a parent, it's mm-hmm. it's it's quite difficult. I, I don't think of Father's Day as having the same valence for non-dads, but I guess it probably does. I think Mother's Day is tougher for my mom since her mom died, which was a long time ago. But I think she th- I think she thinks of her of her mom on Mother's Day, which uh, we, we we miss we miss Grandma Rebecca, but. Father's Day may be an important hog, an important holiday, but news of the Jews stops for no Father's Day. So what do we have? What's the news down in Kentucky? Okay, I want to read you a headline from the Washington Post. Okay. Lawyers for Noah's Ark theme park are suing its insurance company for rain damage. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, this is at um, this place called Ark Encounter in northern Kentucky, which is like a replica Bible theme park. Evangelical Christian Bible theme park in Kentucky. I already love it. And so 
it's actually like a more complicated, boring story where there was like, there was a flood. There was a lot of rain a few years ago and there was like damage to roads. You mean roads. like three, 4,000 years yeah. ago? 5,000? You mean 5,000 years ago? I don't mean, know if that was a pre-existing you mean like a few condition. Years ago. Got it. Okay. Um, for their for their coverage. But basically it like damaged a road and then they were following up. They're in this whole battle with, with the insurance companies and ever, you know, that's just the most amazing story. Like their Noah's Ark could not withstand the flood damage. Said, said Noah in response, it's a good thing I put a pair of lawyers on the Ark. <laughs> According to the article, the company is seeking to recoup what it says were $1 million worth of repairs, as well as attorney's fees. In my early days as a religion journalist, I was sent to do a story oh, those, like, on... those, Bible things? I was sent to do a story on the Holy Land Experience yes. um, theme in park in Florida, where what I remember is, first of all, they seem to think that... Um, that Yom Kippur was a feast day. They called it like the Feast of Atonement, which just, I was like, you, you guys really have to go reread that because uh, they had a musical pageant that involved all the feast days. And then there were a lot of miniature goats. I just remember miniature versions of a lot of like dromedaries and and other sorts of mammals. And it was, um, it was yeah, the evangelicals, when they decide to go Old Testament theme park, it's... It's always an interesting show. European rabbis have called on the World Emoji Council, or whatever it's called, to um, add images that represent Jews. The Conference of European Rabbis has sent a letter to the Unicode Consortium. That is my favorite thing. I, I want to be part of the Unicode Consortium. It's basically the elders of Zion, but <laughs> for the technology world. I mean, for the other. For, oh, we call for, it the youngers bugs. of Zion, because they, they basically, just know about this stuff. They basically said, could you have some emojis that look like observant Jews? Some men in head coverings in Kipot, uh, some women in uh, in head coverings. Uh, and, you know, I have had this thought before. I've tried, in fact, it's it's come up with you guys, Liel and Stephanie, and, and Sarah and Noah and Josh. I've wanted in group text that we've all had or in Slack to send an emoji that has like a really from Jew. Like I've wanted a Strimal. I've wanted a guy in Paeus. Mm-hmm. And I always go looking for it. And then after three seconds, I remember, oh, that's right. They have people looking like other various ethnicities, people who look sort of uh, like observant Muslims, observant Hindus in various ways. They, Policemen, detectives. Yeah. Right, ambulance gardeners. But David they, Bowie. Yeah, they have David Bowie. There's like the thing with the like the, the like lightning. The lightning. The lightning. But but cooks graduates. The, the Ziggy Stardust. But and and of course they have like badly drawn bagels. But they don't have anyone who looks like an observant Jew. And I have wondered. And it is this kind of this this. They may be between uh, a rock and a hard place here because if they do someone who looks like a super stereotypical yeah, like, observant Jew, that. the Jews are going to complain. And they know that. They know we'll make we'll complain about it. So, so Sorry, these people are be happy. There's no point. <laughs> in here's the situation. There are no good Jewish emojis. It's really hard. There's an apple. There's honey. There's but they never a put glass them together of wine. Economy. You could do it yourself. I yeah. get that. But like there's a Jewish star, a star in David. the purple thing, yep. which is just like, why but are we going to use that? I would, really though, that? I would really love a chassid, though, if only for the purpose of when they make the Emoji Movie 2, the sequel to the successful <laughs> Emoji Movie. I'd like to see the Emoji chassid go up to like the poop emoji and be like, excuse me, are you Jewish? This is one for the J Crew. The graphic designers among you, please... Email us the just design the emoji so we can send it straight to the elders of the Unicode Consortium and just say, look, we've done the work for you, right? The world's leading Jewish podcast has crowdsourced the Jumoji that you need, and just just let's inundate them with good options to the point where they just can't make uh, a bagel mistake again.
Our Jewess of the week, she said we could call her that, is Violet Ramis Steele. She's a writer and the eldest child of comedy and film legend Harold Ramis. She's also the author of Ghostbusters Daughter, Life with My Dad, Harold Ramis. Thanks for being with us, Violet. Thanks for having me. I read this book about six months ago. I'd, I'd gotten the galleys, and I'm ashamed to say that when it came in, I didn't just say, oh, these are the galleys I'm going to read. It sat around for a while, and then one day over the summer... I picked it up and started reading and I disappeared into it. And my wife is like, babe, like you're still a parent. You've still got work. You can't just binge read this. I, within 36 hours, I'd read this book. I think it's the best book of 2018. Thank you so I'm much. I'm being totally sincere. There's no book I enjoyed more in the past year than this book. That's so, huge. Interview over. I've now said my piece. <laughs> All right. There's, nowhere, so to go. There's nowhere to go from there. I think this book's amazing. You have a great description of your father in the opening of your book, and I was hoping you might be able to read it for us to give our listeners a taste of sure. what, what's inside this wonderful book. Over the years, he evolved through many phases. There was the acid-dropping, pot-smoking, world-traveling draft dodger who worked, in turn, as an adult psychiatric worker in a mental hospital, migrant farm worker for a week, taxi driver, and guitar-strumming, idealistic, inner-city substitute teacher. There was the ambitious young journalist by day, improv theater nerd by night, who became a Hollywood wonderkind, and ultimately a founding father of modern comedy. There was the eager young husband and doting father who stuck it out for almost 20 years, but who eventually realized he wanted a different life, and so, at 45, married his former assistant and started a new family. There was the rabbi, the Buddhist, the philosopher, the philanthropist, the snob, the everyman, the heartthrob, the glutton, the grandfather, and on and on. The range of experiences he lived through informed his unique mix of mischief-maker and mensch and made him complex without being complicated. Clearly, my father was not a purist in any sense of the word. If Carl Sagan, Pema Chodron, Groucho Marx, and John Lennon had a baby, it might get close to the core elements of who he was. My dad was full of contradictions that he somehow managed to synthesize into a glorious whole person whom everyone admired, respected, and loved. That is so beautiful, and yet the only thing I can imagine right now is Groucho Marx and Pema Chodron <laughs> getting it on. <laughs> Putting on some Marvin Gaye and getting down and dirty. Wow. Um, so when your father died in 2014, there was a real outpouring of love from everywhere and on the internet it's sort of like magnified and metastasized and it was just sort of everywhere did you realize the extent to which your father was beloved before uh, that i really didn't and i it, it's strange i don't know how much of it is a function of of technology um how much it's changed what we know about what everyone else is thinking but um certainly growing up and even as an adult i just he wasn't you know he wasn't on the front page he wasn't cool or buzzed about. Um, so I really didn't know. I mean, I knew that people who really loved comedy um, knew who he was and knew what his influence had been. But in terms of mainstream people, he was never sort of the the big celebrity. Well, he was like a bit behind. I mean, even though he was in movies, he was also behind the scenes as a writer and director. He was, yeah. Um, and he liked, you know, sort of being back there. But he also, I think, wanted uh, a little bit more of the uh, the limelight sometimes. And you found sketches of his, right? Like comedy sketches that you had never seen before that yeah. came up on, on like Twitter and stuff, right? Yeah, certainly. I mean, some of the SCTV things that are just not available anymore. Um, people, you know, have their VCR tapes that they like recorded off of the television uh, back in the 70s. And that's kind of the only place you can see those things. So I'm curious how, how you sort of tracked your own grieving process at 
at, you know, the, the loss of your father with whom you were so, so close. And then to also have it happen at the same time as this like national outpouring of grief from people who actually didn't know him at all, but still felt connected. How do you sort of like navigate that? I mean, for me, it was really comforting to know that other people were were sad and, and mourning him. Um, I think it was different, you know, for my mom, different for my brothers, different for my stepmother, obviously. But I loved getting messages from strangers about what an um, important role my dad had played in their life, even though he never met them. Um, people saying, you know, my best memories of my childhood are watching your father's movies with my dad. And we never laughed or bonded over anything else. I mean, that's huge. I'll tell you the best memories of my childhood, hands down, are watching your father's movies with no you know, doubt at all. So here's a question about these movies, which are, you know, I hold religiously. I mean, they're supremely <laughs> And we're important. talking Caddyshack. We're talking Ghostbusters. We're talking Groundhog Day. We're talking, you know, it, if you look at Stripes, basically the, the comedy canon. Yeah. Of that time. Every, yeah. sure. No, 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 still. Of any time. What they're doing really today matters. doesn't measure up of, of <laughs> any time. I, I completely agree with that. I actually don't think that there have been any really, you know, consequential American comedies that your father did not write or direct. I'm, I'm okay, dead sure. serious about this. But, but here's what gets <laughs> me. Don't go with that. Because I, I, I rewatched them like a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I just introduced my children who are seven and five to Ghostbusters. Oh, that's exciting. We've seen it. He starts young. with Several times. We're deeply into the Harold Ramis canon. Uh, it just seems to me, though, that uh, in kind of today's cinematic climate, mm-hmm. uh, none of these movies could ever get made again. Like I'm watching Animal House, which I saw again a couple weeks ago. And like, you say, it's just you say no in the way. book about Animal House Very when they like deliver the 14 year old girl in <laughs> yeah. the grocery cart to her friend. You're like, yeah, Dad, what were you? Like, <laughs> Dad, come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. We we did a screening of Vacation when the book came out, um, and and book signing, and even introducing Vacation, there were so many disclaimers that I wanted to make, like, you know, don't judge. Like it was it was the time, and even he sort of regretted some of the. Um, sort of lower hanging fruit jokes that that he made at the time. But, you know, it really, it was sort of his development happening on screen and also our cultural development as a, as a country. I mean, things have changed a lot and you just, not only can you not get away with it, but why would you even want to? I mean, is that the joke you really want to make? But do you think that, I mean, should we still watch, should, should we feel guilty about loving them or can we watch them guilt free in your I mean, mind? do we do anything without guilt? <laughs> We're Jews. Well, I mean, I I actually do. Like, I don't feel culpable for laughing. I don't feel that I'm harming anyone by laughing at old movies that have sexist jokes I wouldn't necessarily make today. Like, I think, I think, you know, funny's funny. Funny's funny. I mean, yeah, I think, listen, if you're watching them with your kids, you know, there will be some explaining that needs to happen. Um, And you wouldn't want them going to school and making those jokes. (laughs) Um, True. So, you know, if you think of it that way. Um, but no, I think watch them, enjoy them, and look at them as sort of historical documents almost. I mean, that was comedy at the time, and they really were changing all the rules, and um, that stuff just hadn't been done before in that way. So as a dad, I mean, this book is really, you know, it's it's about him as a dad. It is about him as an auteur and as a writer and as a director, but it's also about him as a dad. I've known some comics. Some of them are really funny in person and are probably funny dads. Some of them aren't. Some of them are actually, a lot of them are depressives, which is kind of interesting. Like, you go into this in the book, but for those who who haven't read the book yet, what was he like as a dad? I mean, he was very much who he was in all areas of life. So he was funny. He was thoughtful. He was um, engaged and involved. But he also, like with his movies, was sort of learning as he went along. He didn't have a grand plan or like a real 
parenting philosophy, I don't think. Most people <laughs> didn't at that time. Um, but Do we now? I mean, I miss that. Well, there's an industry now that's where their books are supposed no, to read. Parenting you know. as a as an action is much different, I think, than it was in in the early '80s for sure for me, <laughs> at least. Um, but he was so involved and um, just really loving and warm, and you know, as as I write about in the book, he was my primary parent. My mom just was not into it um, for the first several years of my life, and he. He was. He did it very joyfully and very naturally. Um, he had had a really warm family upbringing and was close with his cousins and and aunts and and I think it really just sort of gave him a great idea of what family should be and how you get there. You know, is is variable. <laughs> what about uh, he? He then you know your parents split after having been pretty. I guess not estranged, but like the marriage was. They married young, and they sort of went in very different they went directions. Different. And then uh, you had a stepmother, um, who I guess you still she's still alive, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on step parenting? I mean, it's a very interesting portrait of her. I thought. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. I, I'm a stepmother now, also, right. um, and you know, I think even just as a parent, I mean, your kids are always going to be critical of you, and and they should. Um, you know, I have a teenage son and a teenage stepson, and and my stepson sort of is just starting to be critical of, of my husband. And I said, you know, that's great. That's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Like, this is when you think we're all frauds and hypocrites, and um, you go find your own way. I feel so. like just like, just don't be mean to us. <laughs> Sometimes it's unavoidable, <laughs> unfortunately. So, um, you know, your childhood, in, I'm always curious about the children of, of celebrities, right? I mean, you did some time on movie sets. You knew these famous people. What is the level of awareness at the time that, like, this is not normal? Because you went to a school where actually a lot of people did have celebrity parents. So that was one of the things I wondered is actually, is it kind of normal when you're at school in Malibu or wherever it you were? It seemed very normal growing up in Los Angeles. I mean, maybe in my school I was the only one with a Ghostbuster for a dad. But um, certainly, you know, there were other producers and directors. Um, you know, interestingly, you know, Ivan Reitman, the director of Ghostbusters, has a son about my age and, you know, he's sort of followed very much in the mm-hmm. Hollywood footsteps. Right. Um, Jason Reitman. Yeah, yeah. Jason Reitman. Yeah. I mean, a great director. Right. Um, in his own right. But it, it is sort of this thing of like, yes, this is the business that we're all in. And, you know, some people take it on and, and some people And you don't. never you never heard the call? Never occurred to you. I mean, maybe now (laughs) more. I'm a late bloomer after all that. Um, But no, I just wasn't, I I don't have that hustle spirit. I'm not good at putting myself out there. This book, um, you know, was a real challenge in that way. Um, You know, my dad had a public life, but we, you know, we just didn't. Was it worth our moments in which you just put down the pen and be like, or the keyboard or what have you? The quill. I can't, I can't, I can't tell this. I can't reveal this to the world. This is just too painful, too intimate or too I really didn't. I didn't censor anything apart from things that I thought might be just boring (laughs) or repetitive. Um, He was so honest and, and, um, so embracing of all of the ups and downs because he really felt like that informed his experience and that's what got him to the place that he was. That's how he learned and grew. Um, so I wanted to sort of put it all in there. I didn't want to give just a completely rosy portrait. I mean, clearly I adored him. <laughs> um, I think it still came out pretty rosy. Totally, yeah. um, but, you know, it was important for me to to put in, you know, the good and the bad just to paint him as as 
as the complex as person that he really was. Um, and our story, you know, certainly had ups and downs, but we we sort of made it through intact and together. And Did it make you, though, in, in any way reevaluate your, I don't see your opinion of him, but sort of just like the, just the emotional valence of how you approach your relationship? Did you... You mean writing the book? Yeah, did yeah. you discover certain things, rethinking about them, be like, oh, actually, I've always thought that was a horrible thing, but I actually kind of see the deep currents behind it. I mean, not so much. I think I'm always kind of doing that and <laughs> trying to reflect. Again, and... being 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 a, a joy. <laughs> exactly. I love to overthink everything. Um, but no, there were no big revelations or, or turnarounds when it came to him. I mean, we really were so close that there weren't any surprises. I think maybe I was more surprised afterwards, um, even after the book came out. I, I thought that I, you know, to speak to your question earlier, I thought I was sort of getting my grief out of the way as I was writing. Um, and then I realized, no, it's still right there waiting for me when it's all over. Also, the, you had there were like a fair amount of bombshells during your while he was still alive, right? Oh, like it yeah. wasn't like you discovered posthumously all this stuff about him. You, it no, was sort of there were surprises, and he was there for them. I mean, my sister Molly being the sort of biggest one. But this was his love child with. It was his love with child Amy with Heckerling, Amy Heckerling, who, who made Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Clueless, and who's basically the other greatest film director ever. And I didn't know about this love child. I assume it had been in the media. Or no, did, is this your revelation? It was like, not known at you, all. You broke this. Okay, so I wasn't totally behind this. I was like, what? Harold Ramis and Amy Heckerling had a child? Like, and and how old is she now? She's, she's thir- thir- early she's 30s. She's a grown-up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's not in the... Is she in the industry? She is. She's actually... She does stand-up comedy. She's a writer. She used to sing in a band. She makes puppets. She's incredible. Very creative and funny. So... As somebody myself who lives now like 70 miles from the the now legal cannabis shop in Western Massachusetts, um, the only place you can legally buy it. 70 miles. Exactly. Seven, that's 71 <laughs> and a half miles. So long it takes for it to kick in. <laughs> that's right. Uh, you, you know, as, some, as a dad who's constantly rethinking like, is it time for me to go back to my drug use of uh, which, which I keep talking about and writing about and haven't done yet. Um, you're pretty candid that your dad, you know. He was not an abstainer. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, did you, um, I'm always skeptical. There's people, the baby boomers like your dad who did that stuff around mm-hmm. their kids. And my parents had friends who did that stuff around their kids thought, well, it's all fine. We're just, you know, we're keeping it real. Like, why would we hide this? You know? And I think in some cases it was totally fine. And then I knew some kids who like really suffered from seeing their parents out of control in that, mm-hmm. th- that there's a sense of security you have from not seeing your dad, like giggling in the corner, <laughs> <laughs> like drawing like frogs right. with like dry erase markers. And I don't know, how was it for you? And how do you take that into your own parenting? Um, I mean, luckily, he was a very responsible drug user. <laughs> um, so, you know, he he was smoking a lot of pot around me, but it didn't actually fundamentally change who he was. He still could make dinner and, you know, get, get the job done. Right. Um, I think it just really sort of made him happy and more patient. I think as someone who is in their head a lot, it allowed him to sort of relax and just loosen up a little. It didn't, you know, maybe it was just a different time. I think the legality, as you mentioned, is part of it. When it's legal, then will we do it in front of our kids? Like drinking a glass of wine? I don't know. Um, Hasn't come to New York yet. Has not come to New York York yet, yet, so nobody's doing it. Um, I don't know. It was a very uh, relaxed environment all around. (laughs) Um, I think the thing that 
got me through it and that really worked in his favor was that he was the constant. So he was always there. It wasn't like he was on a bender and unavailable, passed out on the couch. I mean, he was present. He was engaged. Um, so, you know, I, he showed me how to roll joints when I was seven years old. That's okay. When you're seven. It's a skill. <laughs> so, and Liel showing his movies to your his kids when, when he, it's like you guys are about it's starting the circle the kids of life. It's, it's the, the circle, circle, of, of life. circle of life. I never understood how parents shield their kids from the world. I mean, not even about drugs or movies necessarily, but I just feel like maybe because of the example I had, you put it out there, they figure it out, they ask questions, you talk about it, and then you, you move teach on. them. You teach them the important things in life, like if someone asks you if you're a god. <laughs> you say yes. You say yes. <laughs> I had to. I'm so sorry. So how has this all impacted your parenting style? Yeah, I don't... I mean, I think like... Every child, I've um, made decisions in reaction to, like, I'm going to do it different. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to provide a lot of structure. And You didn't teach your son to roll boundaries. joints when he was seven. You waited until he was like eight for <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, he does smoke, and he told me when he did. Um, and then <laughs> this is maybe not a great story to tell, but um, he <laughs> oh, figured out how to smoke pot in the house without getting caught because he would go into the bathroom at night after I had smoked. <laughs> so I was never really sure. <laughs> I assume my kids know everything. Right. I mean, I really, they listen, they hear, they see the world. They read the book. They, they, they did the not book. read the book. Oh, wow. I, no. Are they allowed to? Or they... They're actually not interested <laughs> at all. They're like, Mom, I believe that. Not cool. They're so that. tired of me. <laughs> like, I'm already annoying as it is. So I think maybe eventually they'll come. They to don't want to curl up with 300 pages of mom at night. <laughs> like, that's not their idea of relaxing no, in bed. No, they will no. at 28 and be like, this is the most incredible book ever. So do they, as like whatever gen they are, do they understand? Gen like, Z prime. How, like Harold Ramis in the culture, does it still have the same valence to them? Uh, no, definitely not. I mean, my son dressed up as a Ghostbuster like years and years ago before the new movie, before it sort of came back. Um, but no, they don't. I mean, they know Grandpa. Like, oh, he was so cute then. <laughs> um, but they haven't like fully gotten into the the comedy of that time. I don't. I don't know that they will. I mean, I can hope they're gonna like see him in Knocked Up as Seth Rogen's dad. Right. Like, oh, that's right. Grandpa. Oh, Grandpa. That's so, his curious thing. And and this is as someone who this is true now. Dresses up as a Ghostbuster every year yeah. for Halloween. Um, when you see your kids laughing at, what's that horrible movie with Bradley Cooper and The Hangover? The, the, the Hangover. Mm -hmm. Laughing at absolute shit. Do you like silently judge them? Do you like shake your head and be like, no, I'm sorry. That's just offensive <laughs> to our family, you know? Um, I think I had pretty bad taste as a as a kid. Did so you really? I, I what mean, did you find I funny? Think so I, I don't. I mean, Partridge Family. She was jamming on the Partridge Family. <laughs> you're, you're you're watching Porky's. Be like, that's I great. I loved Porky's. I did too. We all loved. <laughs> I would Porky's. sneak out of my bedroom at night to watch Porky's on cable. Um, yeah, I mean, Revenge of the Nerds, all that stuff. I mean, it was bad. No! Bad. Revenge of the Nerds was great. Was it? It was great. It holds um, up. Mark still talks about again, it. Again, you know, like <laughs> cameras in the sorority house. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I think kids, I don't I don't have a ton of respect for kids. Maybe this is, a, again, bad thing to say, but they're kids. They don't know anything. Yeah. They right. think they do. Mm -hmm. They don't. Someday, hopefully, they will. And... You know, I'll do my best to uh, 
offer them the influences that I think. So you don't, there's no like strict, you know, educational curriculums like sit down today. We will study (laughs) Bob and Ray. (laughs) (laughs) This is early Bill Murray. (laughs) I think with my youngest, who's actually named Harold also. There's um, hope for him. Yeah. He's three. Like we, we get him in the Marx brothers. Like we're, we're showing him the old cartoons and, and all that stuff. We're trying to be a little more. So is he Harold Ramis Steele or just Harold, Harold Harold Steele? I like that. That's yeah. really, that's very sweet. Violet Ramis Steele, thank you for being our Jewess of the Week. Thank you so much. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox. We got a really nice letter from our friend Mordechai Lightstone, who works for Chabad. He writes, Hey, Unorthochevra, I wanted to chime in about two subjects discussed in the two latest episodes. In episode 181, Mark mentioned questioning if and how to handle the awkward conversation of vaccines with an Orthodox family he'd be meeting. Obviously, Mark doesn't harbor any anti-Orthodox sentiments himself, and thankfully, the conversation went well. 
That said, I think the very simple way for anyone to determine if it makes sense to ask is if they actively make it a question they ask for everyone they encounter. Despite the media framing of the conversation, actual data continues to show that 96% of the From community vaccinates. The vaccination levels at Brooklyn yeshivas are 6% higher than the statewide average among private schools. This is compared to many yuppie and affluent communities where private schools in Los Angeles, for example, have vaccination rates as low as Chad or South Sudan. All of this is to say asking is important, but honesty would also require that if you ask about someone's little Moshe or Bracha from Borough Park, you should also consistently ask about little Madison and Brooklyn from Malibu as well, and everyone else in between. In episode 182, a listener wrote in asking about the campus Chabad rabbi who keeps referring to her by her Jewish name. Obviously, the dynamics are hard to know without directly witnessing them, but the basic concept of referring to someone by their Hebrew name is more or less in line with what Mark says. Hasidic thought discusses the power of words and names for things, and someone's Jewish name is connected with their soul. The act of referring to someone with their Jewish name would be meant as a way of signaling, hey there, we're both Jews, let's celebrate and share that with the world. That said, if the listener is uncomfortable, honestly telling the rabbi her feelings, that while I respect what you're doing, I'd prefer you do otherwise, should be an entirely appropriate response. Blessings and goodness, Mordechai Lightstone. All right, so to the first one, right? It is true, Mordechai, Mordu, if I may, that Haredi Jews vaccinated higher rates than dumb hippies who named their children Brooklyn. That is true, but that's a pretty low bar. And I, I want to say, like, I agree that that consistency would dictate that if I'm asking Haredi couples, I should also ask, you know, the doula and her husband, the organic beekeeper, is little Brooklyn vaccinated? And here's the thing. I would. Like, if you know me, if you listen to this podcast at all, you know that I'm going right into their business if they strike their me beeswax. as- Their beeswax. Yeah, into their beeswax. Also, if anyone knows you, they know that while you do have Haredi friends- you don't have organic <laughs> beekeeper friends because you really don't have patience. For no, I people. do. They just have less sense of humor, so I don't call them out on the podcast. My Haredi friends are more willing to be teased about this stuff than my my beekeeper doula friends. So here's the thing. You know that I would go right up into their grill and say, is little Brooklyn vaccinated? And if They're not, vegan grill. If not, they I put them in harem. They would be banned. I would excommunicate them. They'd be Spinoza in Amsterdam, baby. They'd get no, no love from me. But that said, you've chosen a kind of you've loaded the deck because, right, that if you compare to that community, yes, no one in your community is as stupid on average as many people in that community. That said, we all should be vaccinating and we should all be vaccinating at the rates of like normal, sane people who, don't politicize, who don't politicize vaccination. <laughs> uh, the rate of every single fucking child. Of please. like, don't murder Thank my you. nine month old who might not have had all the shots yet because Correct. you don't get them all until you're one. Apologies to all of our listeners named Brooklyn or who have named their children Brooklyn. I don't Looking think any you, of our listeners. Brooklyn Decker. I don't think any of Brooklyn our listeners Beckham. have named their children Brooklyn. You know what? If we have a, bro- I'm very curious. <laughs> J. Crew. If this, definitely this is do. For you. Is there a Brooklyn in the house? If your daughter is Brooklyn Rubenstein, <laughs> are you are you a Brooklyn or do you know a Brooklyn? Jews don't need their us. kids Brooklyn. No, they don't. They don't do that. Now, Stephanie, part two was obviously you, you had some thoughts on that. And he's saying, as I think I said, it's well-meaning, right? Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. And another quick missive from a listener. Michael Starr writes, as an expatriate Hoosier, I was sad to hear you treat this veritable El Dorado of culture and good manners as some sort of dismissible flyover state where one could be shocked to find the world's greatest deli. Anyone who knows anything about delis knows that Shapiro's is the best kosher-style deli, full stop. Yours, Michael Starr. Okay, so two thoughts. First of all, Michael Starr, if that's your real name. I don't think that's your real name. That's like your superhero <laughs> name. Okay, so that's that's first of all, it's like, we don't believe your name first is Michael First of all, Starr. you liar. <laughs> Second of all, this was like, talk about touchy. Of course there's good Jewish culture in Indianapolis, as there's good Jewish culture in my hometown of Springfield, Massachusetts, as there's good Jewish culture in Mobile, Alabama, and Reno, Nevada, and lots of places. 
The interesting thing was that our guest Edward Lee said that the best deli was in Indianapolis. Like that was what was surprising was that the it was greatest, the best, the, most the greatest not in the New York, not entire LA. world, right? Correct. Like if you told me that, you know, the greatest bagels in the world were made in Acton, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. I'd be like, Come on, man. That's just not possible, right? Like, so how's there water? Yeah, it was like the it was the the it was the superlative that surprised us. Not that there's good Jewish culture in Indianapolis. So that that's all I have to say, Michael. Whatever your last name is, I will say though, I think we were sort of playing up our like faux mock, like our faux horror at the idea of, of of any deli existing ever. I think we were just sort of playing that up, like how dared there be anything outside of New York City? I think we were poking fun at ourselves. And not actually poking fun at Indianapolis or other cities that are outside, you know, the coastal realm. And so I, I sort of got in it on Facebook to explain that, but people still seemed a little upset about they it. They weren't persuaded. I was like, we're making fun of ourselves. And for the record, we hate it here. We're very, very miserable. Right. We hate the city deeply. We wish we could live in Indiana. I had great deli in Cleveland. You know? Oh, my God. That'd be I had a good deli in Houston, that Kenny and Ziggy's. Kenny and Ziggy's. I was wearing my Jack shirt from Cleveland yesterday. No, we we love America. I mean, and though, can, can we can we make a deal? How about we keep the best delis and you keep uh, affordable housing, backyards, sensible schools, happiness. communal pools, happiness, right. uh, decent work-life balance, first sunshine, marriages, et cetera, et cetera. Right. How about you keep all that? All that. And, and I'm going to eat deli have, in my uh, studio apartment. Smelly deli. Right. There you go. Father's Day Gentile of the Week is Matt Schneider. He is the co-founder of the City Dads Group and hosts the Modern Dads Podcast, a monthly show highlighting stories of 21st century dads and families. Welcome, Matt. Thank you for having me on. I want to thank you for being a Gentile, even though your name is Matt Schneider. (laughs) Schneider is a German word. Everybody assumes, but it's a... The German word for Taylor. For Taylor, yeah, yes. Is that but annoying? you just watch your bubby was when <laughs> Is it annoying that people probably assume you're Jewish? Uh it is not annoying. I have I have Jewish relatives, so I'm I'm not annoyed by it. Some Wait, of your best relatives. Wait a second. Are the Jewish relatives your wife's relatives or they are not. Wait, so how how do you, how give us give us the Jewish connection? It's here. a long sordid history. Um my Great-grandfather and my grandfather were both Jewish, but my, my mom's my mom's mom was not Jewish, so I guess thereby I am not Jewish. My mom's mom's mom was not Jewish. Except according to the reform movement, in which case you are. That, that's my big question for you. We're starting up front. We'll get to that at the we'll end. We'll get but to that. We'll get to, we'll get to that. But um, well, wait, was the Schneider the person who Schneider gave you the Schneider is not. My, Schneider my grandfather, not. Not, not, not a Jew, came from Germany uh, between the world wars and a lot of Oppenheimers are not Jews. Let's talk about dads. You were you became the primary caregiver um, in your family, and then something happened, which is that you sort of became shunned from the world of of the moms. Is I would say true? shunned. I I live in Lower Manhattan, and there's a mothers group in Lower Manhattan. A wonderful group of women, the Hudson River Park Mothers Group. And I became an at-home dad and got to know other mothers. They said, you should join. So I, I put in my Your application. application. <laughs> Was and there I, really an application? There's, there's a form. Uh-huh. Um, and they said, we don't allow dads to be part of the group. And at that moment, I was a little annoyed by it because I was in this role of being an at-home dad. And the mothers were the people in my neighborhood that I was hanging out with already. Why wouldn't I need the same support and resources? But I've since learned that they have good reasons for for wanting it to be a group for mothers. What are the reasons? 
The best reason I've heard is that there are a lot of divorced people or there are people, divorced women that have been part of the group and really used it as a support. And they wouldn't be able to use the group as a support if their partners were in the group as well. Okay. You'd think they could make an exception for someone who is not is not one of their exes. But okay, okay. I mean, I can understand you were peeved. I imagine you were peeved. I was annoyed by it. I, I mean, I was not the kind of person necessarily looking for community, but I, I got to know people that were in it. So why wouldn't I just join because I'm, I'm home like they are? And it's not certainly at all at home mothers in the group. There were a lot of working mothers in the group as well. But it's, it was our neighborhood resource for parents. There were no other neighborhood resources for parents. You go to every music class. It's mommy and me music class, mommy and me yoga class, mommy and me gym class. And I was dad at home and I was going to the classes, which was fine. Um, but you didn't have the membership card to Hudson River Moms. I did not. You didn't get the discount. I got to tell you, I, I find this really kind of surprising. So I'm, I'm you know, a writer and a podcaster, which means I'm, I'm home like 90% of the time, right? And I pick up my kids from school every day. And whenever I show up to any place of gathering that is primarily, you know, mom heavy, um, I'm basically greeted like Thor. You know, the thought that a man would do basic care for his children is like, oh, my God, he picks up his kids. I was like, right, they're my kids. I love them. It's like the exact opposite. It's sort of like this it's like completely ben- undue admiration undo, and exactly. But it's like Ben Affleck babysits his kids in right. Us Weekly. Well, and that's a huge conversation with if there's an at-home dad world, that's a huge conversation is we are not heroic. We're not doing anything that mothers aren't getting hailed for. We are doing the day-to-day tasks of parenthood. And, and Although, what's wrong with you? Why wouldn't you just take the credit and bask in that? You know, it's, it's fine for a little while, and, and it's better than uh, being knocked or being told, put your, put your kids' mittens on or something like that, being, or assuming that you can't do the job. Um, but I think we try to be a little more thoughtful about it and, and recognize that moms don't get, get supported. They don't get boosted up for doing these simple tasks. Why should dad? All right, so you get shunt, you get you get blackballed from the Hudson River Moms group. Uh, what did you do? How did you respond? Well, it was really a buddy of mine. I was a teacher before my kids were born. I was home for three years. A fellow teacher decided he would take off to be at home, and he called me up when his wife's maternity leave was over and said, "What have you been doing in New York?" And I said, "I've been hanging out with moms. I've been hanging out with nannies, and not really thought twice about it." And he had thought about it and wanted to start something. He knew we would be hanging out. Why not start a meetup group uh, for dads? And hence City Dads. It was NYC Dads Group. This was 2008, very focused on stay-at-home dads in New York City, but realized that it wasn't just at-home dads that, or people that would label themselves at-home dads that wanted to meet up. We had teachers that joined us during the summer or guys that have flexible schedules that could join us anytime, guys that wanted to meet up on the weekends with their kids, guys that wanted to meet up for beers in the evening. So really tried to make it a group for all types of dads. And we don't allow moms, so... Take that, moms. So one of the things you do, which I'd love to hear more about, is the New Dad Boot Camp. Yes. What is that? Uh, it is a three-hour workshop. We have trained facilitators, and we have dads that have just had babies, usually guys that have been through the workshop or dads from our, our meetup group, that come in with their babies, and we facilitate a conversation with these guys that are about to have babies. The, the attendees are about to have babies. The, these two or three guys have their babies there. 
the mere fact that you, you get to watch a guy take care of his baby for three hours is is comforting to to the people there. But those guys usually get to hold the baby, feed the baby, change the baby's diaper if they want to. And, so it's like basic skills. And... I mean, the idea we don't. Ha- it's not basic skills from this is how you change a diaper. But when a diaper change comes up, the kind of the whole discussion stops. Everybody focuses on let's let's observe him in action changing his diaper, or let's talk through this new guy. Uh, changing the diapers, so it's a real opportunity to see see it in all, all in action. Well, it's funny because I feel like in movies and stuff, you see the, the like the Lamaze class or like the guy going or like in Knocked Up, they go to like the birthing class, and the men like drop the bit. Like no one knows how to do anything, and that's sort of been like that's sort of a cultural joke. So, is it really important to you to get men without women in the room, without their partners or spouses in the room, to sort of take more ownership of this? Absolutely. Women are not. Women are specifically not allowed in the room. Uh, Baby girls are allowed in the room. But uh, a lot of the conversation is about the parenting partnership. A big piece of the conversation is about what something we call gatekeeping, kind of mother's desire and the pressure on mothers to be the excellent parent, the parent that knows how to do everything. And some kind, sometimes dad gets pushed out. And sometimes he says, oh, great, you're going to make fun of me and how I change the diaper, I'll just stop. Or I don't, bath time, I'm not doing it right, I'll just stop. We really encourage the guys to, to stay in there, want to be in there uh, and learn these skills. Because if they're, if they're not learning these skills up front with their partner, then they're very they're likely not going to be able to pick up along the way, especially if they're going back to work a week, two weeks, three weeks after the baby's born. If one partner's staying home and one partner leaves and only intermittently gets these skills, right. then they have no chance. I got to tell you, this is really something I wish um, I had uh, when I had my children. I am now like heavily involved. You know, I pick up my kids uh, every day from school. I cook them. You just doff Yomi with them, I, a little Talmud. I study with them. I do the homework with them. I'm with them, you know, every moment that they're home. Uh, but it took me, I would say, a good two years to really understand what it is that I needed to be doing. Uh, the first two years, I was basically like, there's really little I can do here. I'm not competent enough, so goodbye. I'll see you at some point when they, you know, put complete sentences like I've together. defended Israel on the Lebanon border That's but right. I can't I, I don't I don't know that I could were you the same way how no. were you no, you no I wasn't um, I mean I'll just be perfectly frank I think part of it was uh, that I was 14 when my sister Rachel was born and I changed diapers to help out my parents and there were nights not a lot but there were nights when she was up for the fourth time and my parents I could you know and, and I was awake because she was crying and we were in a very small house and I would get up and, and rock her and give my parents a break you know this probably happened 10 times not 50 times but enough that like I right it was part I, of your emotional I, I, I knew how to hold I always liked babies and I knew that I could change a diaper and you know I felt basic competency I mean I'm of two minds about all this. On the one hand, I actually think that it is it's important for society to have some single sex spaces. And by the way, I think people who are on some place of the gender spectrum can pick one of those spaces and and go to it. But I think for a space to identify as being like this is for dads, you know, that's fine. And I think it's actually like salutary. And this is for moms and this is for women. And I think there should I think it's okay for there to be women's colleges. I actually think it's okay for there to be men's colleges, though I didn't want to go to one, right? So I think that this is actually great, and I understand why there are th- ways you can talk and things you can talk about just around your fellow dads. And like my poker game is not looking to invite the wives along. Right. On the other hand, all the stuff you're talking about, like daddy boot camp, part of me wants to be like, I'm just going to be totally frank here. 
Men, man the fuck up. This isn't rocket science. This is your child. You sired this child. Changing diapers is not the most difficult thing you'll ever do. The seventh time you do it, it will feel like like old hat. And so that's number one. I'm of like seven minds about this. Totally and then, agree. And then number two is like, I actually found it, I think like Liel, we were talking about this. I found it kind of great to be on the playground with just the other moms. I didn't want the other dads around. Like, you know, the other moms thought I was kind of heroic and I liked having their company. And I've read a lot of Tom Parada and John Updike novels. Who knows where this could go? And you're, and, you're the peckish lion in the savannah. Yeah, it was kind of freaking all. Like, I just didn't mind hanging with like, also, I'm 44 and I have a new baby. I didn't mind hanging with the 27-year-old first time. I'll be perfectly frank about this. Really? Is that so hard? Uh, a lot of guys have had a very hard time. Maybe it's being in New York City. It's not that abnormal to be a dad on the playground. There are guys around the country that they go to a playground and they're perceived as a threat. As predators. As, as yeah. predators. Yeah. Um, or they're perceived as totally incompetent and moms swoop in and need to take care of the baby. Uh, because dad certainly can't. His day off from from work, he can't take care of the baby. So I think our New York experience uh, is a little bit different. A lot of guys also uh, have those feelings, but sometimes I think they bring it on themselves. I remember the first day after my wife went back to work after maternity leave, I walked out with the stroller by myself, and I thought all of Lower Manhattan's eyes were on me. And obviously, <laughs> nobody cares about me walking yeah. around. Walking around. Why did this man kidnap that child? Exactly. <laughs> One of the things you talked about on your blog, and what's the, people give people the URL? Citydadsgroup.com. Yeah, and you have a very active blog that has you and other people posting. And there is one post where um, you talk about how the issue of paternity leave is not always that it's not offered, but that men don't feel like they should take it. And here I will say, like, absolutely, men, you have to take it and you have to make it a cultural norm to take it. And I was very clear with all of my employers when because I we just had our fifth child and I've been clear each time along the way, like I'm out of pocket for however long. And with our first baby, it was much longer and I did a lot more. I was probably doing 20, 25 hours a week of childcare with this baby. It's been less because, you know, I'm podcasting. But um, but it's really important for men to lean into that and say, like, we are going to parent and, and our bosses, our wives aren't going to stop us or our partners. And also our bosses aren't going to stop us. Right. Absolutely. And th this, I think, uh, is a fairly new conversation. Women have been trying to find a way to balance work and family for decades. And men are finally joining the conversation, not just because. Uh, their wives want them to, their partners want them to. Men now want to be part of that and be there up front to learn these skills. And it makes such a difference when you can be home in that first month, two months to pick up those skills, really create that parenting partnership um, versus missing two weeks a month, two months of work. In the grand scheme of a 50-year career, missing this short period of work is going to make no difference. But you're right, the culture of the workplace does not lend to men taking off, mainly because the generations before us did not take off. So I, I didn't take off. I went back to work an hour after the kid was born is like a badge of honor for some of these guys. And our Generation. I went back to the golf course the exactly. next, the very next <laughs> exactly. Saturday afternoon. I shot three under par. Well, it's interesting because I've, I've been talking to people who, you know, if you work like in banking or in law, it, it is a lot of the time these male partners, these male senior figures. And they're like, I'm sorry, what? There's there's a, a it's a real culture problem where if, if your boss, if your boss's boss, the main guy in charge, and it's usually a guy, doesn't respect that you're taking paternity leave, I I think actually it becomes more important right. for for young younger guys to assert that actually this is how things work now. Absolutely, right. yeah. and this really is a women's issue. Also, if men aren't taking leave and women are taking leave, you create this inequality yep. in the workplace as well. So women are really supporting this idea of men 
getting the policy and actually taking the leave. One final question for me. What is the thing you've seen hundreds, indeed thousands of dads? Um, what is the thing they're worst at or most scared of? Like what what is the number one anxiety that makes them want to go into communion and community with other dads? I think this work issue is big. The idea that you can still be good at your job and still be the dad that you want to be is a new concept. It used to be you relied on somebody else to do the heavy lifting of childcare while you focused on work, and that's no longer the case. So women have been working for decades trying to figure out that balance. Men are just coming into this conversation. This so insane. I want nothing more than for my wife to use her Yale Law degree to make millions Same and I can here. be a full-time dad. There's nothing I, better I, in this I, world as far as I'm concerned. Nothing better. Josh Cross is like pumping his fist mm. out there. Um, you came with some questions for us as a Gentile of the week. What can we tell, what, what Jewish knowledge can we drop on you? I think the big one is personal. We started the conversation earlier. My great-grandmother was not Jewish. She married a Jewish man. Um, they had my grandmother. She married a Jewish man, uh, but she was she was not considered Jewish. My mother actually did did spend some time in Hebrew school, but she also went to church and she grew up confused. I grew up with no religion in my life. Um, where why is it that at somewhere along the way, why mother, matri- why, why only matrilineal descent? Yes, exactly. Wait, so your your grandmother? He's actually eleven twelfths. Yeah, Jewish. your grandmother was half <laughs> Jewish. Yes. And then she married a Jewish person. Yes. So your mother is what, three quarters, three quarters Jewish? Jewish? Yes. But so not. you're three eighths Jewish, something like that. Yes, I believe. So you can explain matrilineal descent, but I will say that not everyone believes that. Only the most sort of strict interpretation of Jewish law says you're only Jewish. I don't know for that I would mother. say only the most strict interpretation. I would say it's the mainstream, except for well, except for American of... Reform, which is the majority of American Jews for now. Well, right. So anyway, there are plenty of reform temples that would be happy to have you and they would call you up to the Torah and they'll circumcise you if that hasn't if that work still needs to be done. Oh, we could do it right here, right now. Right here, right that, now. That work was uh, taken care of. That good. that was a different question that I, you've covered apparently on. Good. So Liel, do you want to answer the question? I, I, I I'm curious to see what how you would explain it, because I you know I mean historically so it's 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 Talmud, right? Isn't it Talmud where they say, so it's it's sixth century rabbinic teaching that it has to come from the mother's side. And I think the thinking on it was you always know who it's the mother sixth is. Century, but okay, whatever. Yeah, go ahead. Talmud is sixth century. Late go fifth, ahead. early sixth. Continue. Dad, don't fight. Um, I will take you to a dad's group right now and smack you down <laughs> in front of 300 other dads in, my, in, in, in Tribeca. Can you answer the question? Um, and I think the, the the legend is that uh, you always know who the mother is, but don't always know who the father is. So if you're if if this is a religion based on familial descent, which it is in Torah, the idea is we're a family, we're descended from Abraham. So how are you going to know who your de- the descendants are? It's going to be based on who the mom is. You know, in these days of twenty three and Me and my ancestry dot org dot heritage, you know, we could be more liberal about it. But I think that's yes, Stephanie Liel, yes, yes, yes. Well, yes. yeah, I mean, it's important that Jew- Judaism is a matriarchal religion. That is like a sort of a big thing, considering how kind of crappy things were for a lot of the women in the Bible. And that is a this really, is a big power that they have. And it's also a really central tenet of faith. It is not a kind of casual, oh, it's also a thing that we do. It's a pretty But I'm saying that major. a lot of people, like, you are not halachically Jewish because your mother... 
Yeah, that's right. That's I right. think isn't 100% Jewish. So, yeah. in that way, but I think a lot not. of people would be like, oh, your dad's Jewish? Fine. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you wanted to identify as Jewish. A lot of people say, oh, you went to Wharton? That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. You're to a show, stay at home dad who to went show to Wharton. that mug. Um, but here's an interesting thing that I always think about, and and I think other people will start thinking about it. It's It's inevitable is that. I bet we'll get to the point where we will discover through the myancestry.org.heritage.23 that all of us, if we're ever able to figure out not just what percentage you are, but where it comes from, we will all discover that we're not halakhically, according to Jewish law, Jewish, because the odds that any one of us has a can go back in their matrilineal line, mothers, 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 and that everyone along the route was Jewish are actually pretty slim. And it only takes one great 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 grandmother to not be Jewish, and that sullies the whole rest of the line. So actually, we're going to discover that by those rules, none of us is Jewish, which means you're as Jewish as the I rest of us. I will say though, this is an interesting part of a discussion about dads, right? Because we're all, your sort of work is about empowering dads and allowing them to feel like they are co-parents, equal partners, stuff like that. And so it is funny that Judaism presents this kind of like quandary of if dad isn't Jewish enough. It's sort of like an it's sort of an interesting side note to this whole conversation about what role dads play. And it is one of the interesting things about having lots of daughters, right, as I do, which is like, well, you know, I will definitely have some grandchildren who, according to the strictest, most Hebrew national standards, are Jews because they're going to be the product of my, which is a very, that's the kind of thing you're not supposed to admit even thinking about those things, but it it crosses one's mind. Well, and I didn't, I mean, I didn't go to Hebrew school. I didn't grow up. I had a lot of friends that were Jewish, I didn't, but I was not. So that, to me, obviously, is, is why I'm not Jewish. It's not because my great-grandmother wasn't Jewish. But um, I, I thought it was an interesting conversation as well. As we think about fathers and mothers, and I have not heard Judaism called a matriarchal religion before, so that's a whole other question. The work we do on this podcast is very important. Educational. Uh, if people want to learn more about City Dads, they go to citydadsgroup.com, our podcast, our blog, all our social media channels, all there. Hallelujah. Thank you so much, Matthew Schneider, for being our Jew of the... <laughs> <laughs> our our three-eighths Jew of the... For being our Gentile... <laughs> Five-eighths Gentile of the week. Our Gentile of the week. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matthew Schneider, for being our Gentile of the week. Mazel tovs. Stephanie, what do you have? I got a big old mazel tov to my dad, Howie B. Howie B? He's the best. Oh, for Father's Day. Yeah. yeah. See what I did there? Um, he, You know, as I said, he says every day is Father's Day. So, you know, I probably won't get him a card. But here, but here this is an e-card. I'm going to send a big mazel tov to, uh, to all the great dads out there. I'm going to start with Tim Oppenheimer, the OG, who's been a guest on our show. If, you, if you've joined us since we interviewed my dad maybe two years ago... That's a really good one to go back and listen to because he's he's a he's a, a thoughtful cat. Uh, but then also my brothers. I'm gonna give a shout out to uh, to uh, to DJ Oppenheimer, my brother, and uh, and my brother Jonathan Pookie, Pookie Oppenheimer in St. Paul, DJ Oppenheimer in Austin. Uh, I'm, I have high hopes for my brother-in-law Eric Rolfson in Chicago. I I see I see many little Rol- Rolfsonheimers coming out of that union, and they will be well raised. <laughs> so, uh, so your my- sister's so happy to hear you say that. <laughs> many. She's like, babies I are coming out of where? I see nine Rolfsonheimers coming in Chicago, uh, b- b- and 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 they're. You are such a dad, even when you're a brother. I yeah. will stare into their future at our live show, uh, June twenty sixth. June twenty. 20- Sixth in Chicago, Liel. Uh, well, we mentioned him on on this episode. Uh, I'd like to extend a hearty mazel tov to Mordechai Lightstone and Hannah Lightstone, and to Dovid Margulin, who 
uh, have many beautiful children between them, but who not too long ago on Lagba Omer uh, had the upshirin, uh, the first traditional haircut at the age of three for both of their adorable young sons. So mazel tov on that. Mazel tov. And a final mazel tov, our producer star, Fredman Ader. I want to wish a very happy birthday to the father of my children, uh, Robert Ader, Jim Bob Ader. Jim Ader. <laughs> We've called him Bobby. Jim Bob Ader. Uh, who may or may not listen to this podcast. Um, uh, happy Father's Day and happy birthday. <laughs> He's hanging out with Sid Yay, not listening Bob. to our podcast. <laughs> Yay. How old is he turning? 31. Happy 31st, Bobby Ader. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the internet at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. You can also leave us a voicemail, 914-570-4869. We often come to you live, as we will in Chicago on June 26th. To book us or to advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross with a K at tabletmag.com. On Instagram, we're at unorthodoxpodcast. On Twitter, we're at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. And our associate producer is Sarah Fredman Ader. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. And our mailbox theme is by Los Angeles' own Steve Martin. Rabbinic supervision by Cantor Stuart Figa of Temple Hartzion in River Forest, Illinois. And we come to you from Argo Studios, which is father to all studios. Happy Father's Day and Shalom, friends.